finished chapter 17 last time, and we should be able to get 18, 19, and 20 tonight, God willing. What we're dealing with is a series of oracles against nations that surround Israel. So we've done Edom, we've done Philistia, Damascus, Moab, so forth, which are all kingdoms that surround Israel. And what God has talked about in each case is God, of course, is dealing with his own people. And he deals with them in two stages. The first stage is with the Assyrian Empire, which takes out the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. The second stage will be the Babylonian Empire, which is going to take out Judah. Isaiah, of course, is prophesying during and before the takeout of the northern kingdom. And so he is a century or so before the takeout of the southern kingdom. And the empire of Syria and the empire of Babylon are both doing what God told them to do. I want you to go in and take them out because they have gotten to the point where I can't stand them anymore and they need to go into exile. However, in that process, they engage in what I would call unnecessary roughness, which means that they do far more death and destruction than is strictly necessary to carry out God's program. And furthermore, the nations around them also pile on, if you will, which again, God didn't call anybody to do. So these oracles have to do with the process of taking out Israel and what's going to happen to the nations around them as a consequence of their behavior. So we finished last time Damascus. So we're going to do Cush this time. And Cush, biblically, is south and west of Egypt. The area of modern-day Sudan, Ethiopia, and actually up into what is now Egypt. So start reading. Ah, land of whirling wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Now, I'm going to read that same two verses in a different translation. So the one I just read is English Standard. The one I'm going to read now is the Tanakh, Jewish Publication Society. Ah, land in the deep shadow of wings beyond the rivers of Nubia. Go, swift messengers, to a nation far and remote, to a people thrust forth and away, a nation of gibber and chatter, whose land is cut off by streams, which sends out envoys by sea and papyrus vessels upon the water. Now, the... Big difference between those two is in the English standard, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, and in the Tanakh, it is to a people thrust forth and away, a nation of gibber and chatter. The, the difference there is that the Nubians, or the Cushites, same thing, are not Semitic peoples. What's that mean? Semitic peoples are people that speak Semitic languages. Uh, languages from Babylon, Israel, that kind of regional language. The Cushites are African people. They come from a completely different language group. 
So to the Israelites, according to Tanakh, it's a nation of gibber and chatter, which is to say, we can't understand them. So that's the Jewish Publications Society translation of that phrase. And then we come to the English Standard Translation, a nation tall and smooth to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering. Now, one of the things about Nubians is they were, in fact, a tall people. They were also a smooth-skinned people. Racially and genetically, that's what they look like. I have no idea which translation is correct, but either one of those translations is reasonable with respect to what is going on here. The idea that they're coming forth in vessels made of papyrus. Well, papyrus, of course, are the reeds that grow along the Nile River. You all recognize papyrus because there was a major industry in that part of the world making paper out of papyrus. So papyrus would have been used for all sorts of purposes in that region. So what's going on here? Historically, what's happening is the Assyrians are coming down from the north and they conquer all the way to Egypt. According to one commentary I read, what these ambassadors are are the Cushites who were running Egypt at that time, going to Israel with the offer of making an alliance against the Assyrians. But the point is, the Cushites or the Nubians are sending emissaries to Israel in papyrus boats. So now verse 3. By the way, I'm back in the English standard. All you inhabitants of the world who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over, the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and it spreads the branches he lops off and clears away. So first off, period of time that is before harvest and after blossoming is the summer. Poetic way of saying this summer. And what he's going to do, he is going to cut off the shoots with a pruning hook and the, and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. One of the things that were talked about with respect to Moab is that his branches spread farther than they were supposed to. So the idea of spreading branches in this case talks of a people spreading to new territory. And what it's saying here is you've got the Nubians coming up here trying to make an alliance with you to resist the Assyrians. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it because the spreading branches I am going to cut off. And of course we know historically Sennacherib, who was the Assyrian emperor, came down and laid siege to Jerusalem. And you remember 185,000 of his men died with the hand of the Lord in front of Jerusalem. And then he went back home and was assassinated by his own son. So God, in this case, took care of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. And that's in 2 Kings 19. So that's what we're talking about here. So let's go ahead and finish the thought here, and then we'll come back. So verse 5 again. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over, and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, 
and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountain, to the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So the idea is these branches and shoots that he's going to lop off are going to leave dead people to such an extent the birds of prey will summer on them, and there will be so many corpses that the beasts of the earth will be able to eat them over the winter as well. It's all just a poetic way of saying he's going to slaughter 185,000 of them and leave them to rot on the ground. So now verse 7, At that time tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a mighty nation and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Now that's how we started this thought up above. The people tall and smooth, a nation mighty and conquerors, whose land the rivers divide. So what you have is a chiasm here. So the beginning of the chiasm is verse 2, and the end of the chiasm is verse 7. And at the end of that, the temple will still be in effect, because the temple continues until the Babylonian invasion 120 years later. So as God cuts off the Assyrian army before Jerusalem, these people who sent ambassadors will send sacrifices to the Lord in his temple. So anyway, that's chapter 18. Chapter 19. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. They will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums of the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians to the hand of a hard master." And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the fierce king that is going to rule over them is going to be an Assyrian king. 18 was the Nubians trying to figure out some way to avoid this through diplomacy or making alliances and so forth. One of the things about this is in verse 3. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians to a hand of a hard master. So the first thing, you all remember the book of Exodus. And one of the things that kings in that region during this time frame had is guys on their staff whose job it was to inquire of the spirits. Prophets, inquiring of the dead, inquiring of spiritual beings, so forth. So in the book of Exodus, for example, when Moses and Aaron went in and did their wonders in front of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's called in his staff magicians, and they were able to duplicate the same stuff that Moses and Aaron did. So it was the case that these empires always had on their staff people whose job it was to look into the spiritual realm. You remember in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream and he talks to his advisors, wise men, and says, tell me the dream and the interpretation. 
And of course, they all said, uh, nobody can tell you what the dream is. Give us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. He said, ah, oh, you're trying to trick me. And was in the process of slaughtering that whole staff section when Daniel stepped up and inquired of the Lord and, and found out. So the fact that there are staff spiritual advisors in all of these kingdoms is normal throughout the world at that time. Should be normal again here, but it isn't quite so much, unfortunately. Not necromancers, but having people on your staff whose job it is to pray and so forth would be a good thing in our government. So the hard master in four is going to be the Assyrian king, and then five, the waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament, all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will languish, who spread nets on the water. Workers in combed flax will be in despair, and weavers of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and those who work for pay will be grieved. So well, this is economic devastation. Now, you all, of course, all know your history, and Egypt is a great big country with all of its population huddled right around the river. So you got a whole lot of territory on either side of the river, but it's just desert and nobody lives there. Everybody lives around the river. And every spring, the Nile floods. And if the Nile flood is high and heavy, what it does is it brings silt down, and the silt then flows out over the land, and as the water recedes, the silt is nutrient-rich, and that's what they use to grow crops. If the flood is sparse, people starve. If the flood is abundant, there is prosperity. So everything is centered on the Nile River, and what God is saying here, I'm going to dry up the Nile. And if the Nile dries up, everything else in that paragraph follows. You don't have any crops. You don't have any flax to make into linen. You don't have any fish to catch. Everything depends on the Nile in that region. Verse 11. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fool, the princes of Memphis are deluded, and those who are cornerstones of their tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion and will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Let me explain what's going on here. Eastern wisdom. You know it is said in the Bible that Solomon was the wisest of men. That is not biblical hyperbole. That is something that is enumerable, that it can be counted. The way Eastern wisdom is codified is in two-phrase couplets. The book of Proverbs, for example, is full of them. and They're called mashalim. And the more of those you know and can bring up in conversation, you and I are talking, I say, oh, well, you know, a fool and his money are soon parted. The more of that stuff I can pull up on the spur of the moment as I'm in conversation, the wiser I am. 
and Solomon knew more of those than anybody. Now, having said that, Israel was not considered an intellectual center of the world at that time. The two intellectual powerhouses were Egypt and Babylon. So if you were looking for intellectual horsepower, you went to either Egypt or Babylon, not Israel. Solomon was an anomaly. The people who knew this wisdom lived in places like Zon and Memphis and so forth. Just like in Daniel's day, there were the sorcerers and the Chaldeans whose job it was to maintain wisdom and do astronomy and you know, all of that spiritual stuff. Egypt has the same kind of folks. And they live in Zoan, which is the southernmost city in the Nile Delta. Used to be the capital of Egypt, isn't anymore. Memphis was also a capital of Egypt at one time, before Cairo. So the idea that these people who live in these metropolitan centers of wisdom have been made stupid and are giving bad advice is by way of the Lord saying, your earthly wisdom is not going to be able to prevail against what I'm going to do. And again, this is all poetic. It speaks of Zoan and Memphis and so forth. You're supposed to recognize that those were, in fact, like university cities. Oxford will have nothing to say about this. Well, Oxford doesn't say a word. Oxford is full of English professors, and the English professors will not have a word to say. It's the same kind of way of speaking. What God is saying here is he's going to dry up the Nile, going to cause economic devastation to Egypt, and all the wisdom of the wise of Egyptians are not going to be able to give any advice that is going to enable Egypt to avoid what God is going to do. Verse 16, In that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. So the Lord of hosts is known in that region as the God of Israel. And one of the things that happened in the theology in that region is gods were thought to be territorial. Remember one of the things that happened in the Exodus, is Moses came in and said, the God of the Hebrews came and talked to me and you got to let us go. Well, he may be the God of the Hebrews, but he's not the God here in Egypt. God's here in Egypt are my gods, of whom I'm one. And of course, Jehovah then proceeds to disabuse him of that notion. But theologically, in that region, the idea that gods are local and territorial is common. So when they recognize that the Lord of hosts is the one that's doing it to them, what happens then is their fear turns to Judah. Shoot, the God of the Israelites who's in Jerusalem is the one that's doing it to us. Therefore, you look at the people of Judah and you are afraid. So what they are doing then is in fear of the Jews because of their God. Verse 18. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. This may be a translation problem because nobody has any idea what the city of destruction is. There is in the Dead Sea Scrolls 
and some other manuscripts, instead of City of Destructions, it's City of the Sun. City of the Sun is Heliopolis, which is a city on the northern coast of Egypt. That's a real city. It was established by the Greeks. Heliopolis means City of the Sun in Greek. So it's entirely possible that in that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts, one of these will be called City of the Sun. And that fits everything. Nobody has any idea what City of Destruction is. 19. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Notice it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. So what's going to happen is the Egyptians are going to be united with the Israelites who are going to be united with the Assyrians. That's what this paragraph is going to say. This is a future time when there's going to be peace all the way from Egypt up to the Euphrates River, which is where Assyria is. So verse 21, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. 23, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come to Egypt, and Egypt to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Notice the idea here is there's going to be a peaceful highway all the way from Egypt up to the Euphrates, and people are going to be able to move freely back and forth, and they are all going to worship the Lord of hosts. 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. By the way, this could very well be referring to the time immediately after the crucifixion. Because immediately after the crucifixion, Egypt was a Christian nation, as was Syria. So that whole swath from Egypt all the way up through Turkey was Christian before the Muslim invasion. So it's entirely possible that this is a prophecy of that time. It could also be a prophecy of the end times. I just don't know. All right, so that's the end of the poetry. We're now going to go into 20, which is a short historical interlude before we swing back into poetry again. We'll do that and we'll finish up. So chapter 20. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Does this sound like Ezekiel? Same idea. Remember Ezekiel was told to walk around naked and cook his food on cow dung and all that kind of stuff. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. 
historically what does happen is the Assyrians do take out the Egyptians and the Cushites. Verse 5. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. Whose hope and whose boast? Judah's. Remember, Judah tries to make a treaty with Egypt and Cush when the Assyrians come down and Isaiah tells the king, don't do it. So Israel has tried to make or has considered making a treaty with the Egyptians and the Cushites. And what they are seeing now at the hand of the Lord is the Egyptians and the Cushites are being led back up north past them as captives. So what God is saying here is, see what would have happened had you succeeded in making a treaty with the Egyptians and the Cushites. Verse 6, and the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Historically, Assyria does go down and take out Egypt and Cush, leads them captive up to the north, and Israel recognizes the futility of their plan to make an earthly treaty with those kingdoms to save themselves from Assyria. And of course, the only thing that is going to save Judah is God. Let us shine.